and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by... Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and... Dalibor Rohaj, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along a line which runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our guest today, uh, back for the, I've lost count number of times, but always welcome, uh, Fred Kagan, also a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and uh, director of our Critical Threats Project and also associated with the Institute for the Study of War. ISW tracking of uh, the Ukraine war has been arguably the best uh, effort uh, in the uh, open source literature throughout the conflict. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and welcome to you, Fred. Um, You've been here enough. I'm just going to turn the microphone over to you uh, to start with your impressions about what's going on in the wall, and in, in particular, Uh, the nuclear anxieties that are on our front pages day in and day out without end these days. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks for having me uh, back. Um, I always enjoy spending time with you all Um, and glad that you are continuing your excellent coverage of this uh, conflict. One of the purposes of Putin's comment about nuclear war is to make sure that it's constantly in our minds and constantly on the front pages and that we are now constantly looking for indication and evidence that he might uh, use nuclear weapons. One of the purposes uh, of his statements was certainly to sow fear and concern and to try to create headwinds for continued uh, Western support to Ukraine um, and also for the Ukrainian counteroffensives, which are succeeding and which I look forward to talking about with you in much more detail. Um, On the nuclear threat, the bottom line is that it would be an individual decision by one guy to use nuclear weapons. And so attempts at forecasting that are uh, fraught. I can offer you a lot of arguments about why I think it's unlikely that he will use uh, nuclear weapons against Ukraine and why I think there's almost zero chance that he will use nuclear weapons or conventional weapons directly against NATO for that matter. The short version of why not in Ukraine is that a terrorist kind of nuclear strike, that is to say uh, the use of a short-range nuclear weapon against a populated area or or even just a random field somewhere, is, in my judgment, extraordinarily unlikely to cause Ukraine to surrender or cause the West to stop its support. And the stakes for Putin of using a nuclear weapon and not achieving a decisive effect are pretty close to existential because nuclear weapons are pretty much the last thing that is keeping Russia on anybody's radar as a major power. And I think Putin understands that he cannot afford to have that weapon also devalued by using it in a less than decisive way. So he would need to be very confident in my judgment that using a nuclear weapon would achieve some decisive effect. And I don't think that he has any reason to be confident that hitting a Ukrainian city would do so. Uh, So we could talk about battlefield use of nuclear weapons and 
here in theory, it's complicated. In practice, it isn't really. In theory, the Russian army is supposed to be able to operate on a nuclear battlefield. Mm -hmm. And so we could have a long conversation about how he might use nuclear weapons relatively close to the front line to stop the Ukrainian counteroffensive and let the Russians advance through even irradiated terrain, because, of course, the Russians are supposed to have the equipment and training to do that. In practice, there's not the... And they always have their full kit. Well, in practice, there's not the slightest chance that the Russian military, as it is currently constituted, could do that, uh, keeping in mind that they're, you know... Unless the troops brought the kits with them from home. (laughs) Well, what troops? Because we've got reservists who've been called up on, are being told to equip themselves, and I'm pretty sure that they're not buying their full NBC kit um, and then sent to the front in a few days. No, it was just a poor joke on my part. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I no, I mean it's an important question. It's an important question and the answer is no. We haven't seen them preparing for this, but this force couldn't do it. Any areas that Putin irradiated would be basically no-go areas for the Russian military as well with the high risk that he would contaminate his own troops anyway. Um all of which I think makes a battlefield use very unlikely. So, I'm chiming in with all of the other officials and experts who are saying, yes, he might, but he very probably won't. And at the end of the day, it'll be an individual decision and it's Putin. So you can never say never. You know, the the other uh, sort of developments that came out of Putin's speech last week have, have also been kind of thrashed through uh, in the press, the so-called annexation and the mobilization in some ways, if you would like to talk about that, you're welcome to do so. But I was really, really struck by a report that you all just put out, I believe last night, uh, describing the sort of fracturing of factions uh, that support Putin. I thought that was, that was quite interesting, quite on point, quite current, and also something that I think would uh, interest our, our listeners. Do you mind running through that sort of three-part division that you mentioned? Sure, thanks. This is um, this is the work of our, our superlative uh, analyst at the Institute for the Study of War, uh, Katya Stepanenko and uh, Lena Hurd. Um, and Katya in particular has been following this uh, mill blocker discourse for the entire conflict uh, very, very closely. And it's been quite fascinating. Basically, the Russian nationalist, sort of extremist nationalist space has broken into roughly three camps at the moment. Uh, on the one hand, you have the mill bloggers themselves, and these are we call them mill bloggers. These are guys who are war correspondents. In some cases, they actually are serving on or near the front line, or else they have contacts uh, with people who are serving. Most of what they put out comes out over Telegram, and they provide very, very detailed reporting of what's going on. Um, These guys have been increasingly critical of the Russian war effort since ever since that disastrous Russian attempt to cross the uh, Sierovsky Donetsk River while they were taking uh, the Sichansk. But they've been coherent as a group and generally not attacking the other members of the sort of nationalist wing in the Russian state in the information space. Um, but that's become begun to change. I'll come back to that. So that's one group is the mill bloggers. 
Um, another group is the veterans organizations, and these are mainly veterans with of the of the generation that remembers the Soviet Union, and they have been calling for many months for full scale general mobilization, call up and conventional sort of building out Russia's conventional military capabilities in a traditional fashion among other things. And they've been pointing to problems, including back in May, I think it was, they actually pointed to some of the problems that have bedeviled the Russian mobilization effort uh, that Putin just ordered. Um, And Putin obviously didn't pay attention to them and didn't implement their changes, for which I'm grateful, but they're not. The third group um, is small, but very interesting. It consists at the moment of uh, Ramazan Kadyrov, the Chechen warlord, who has been providing a lot of Chechen troops and also flamboyantly uh, prancing around as a, as a warlord. And who's gotten, I think, an extra star, right? He's now a two-star general. Yes, yes, yes. He's going to sacrifice his sons. Well, he claims that he's been promoted today. Taz picked it up. I'm not sure we've seen official confirmation of that, but it could be. So uh, he, on the one hand, and Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the owner of the Wagner uh, private military company, who's also been providing uh, a lot of troops to this fight. They kicked up a storm a couple of days ago by directly attacking Colonel General uh, Alexander Lapin, who was the commander of the Central Military District, and blaming him by name for the disaster around Limon. Uh, that was unprecedented. We haven't really seen, we certainly haven't seen those two guys come after anyone by name. And in general terms, uh, most of this crowd has has held back from criticizing field commanders by name. It was also probably something of an unfair hit, actually, because it's not even clear that Lopin actually was in command of those forces. That attack has really kind of splintered this group. So the mill bloggers have generally rallied around Lopin. They've been attacking the Ministry of Defense and they hate Shoigu and they don't like uh, the, the defense minister Shoigu, and they, they don't like the chief of the general staff, Gerasimov, uh, but they have rallied around Lapin and have begun criticizing Kadyrov and Prigozhin for being self-interested and promoting themselves, which they certainly are. The space has gotten very conflicted and ugly. And why does all that matter? It matters because these are core constituencies that Putin absolutely needs. These are the people who most support the war in Russia, and they speak to the audience that most supports the war in Russia. If there's going to be continued support for fighting this war, continued willingness to get people into the front lines, these guys need to be pushing. And instead, they are pushing for that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Their support for the war is not weakened. But they've now fallen to this open infighting. And what's fascinating is this is occurring on mainstream Russian media also, because Putin, in part, we think, to buy off these mill bloggers, has started to let them speak on the Russian TV channels that actually reach large audiences. And so this fight is now kind of in the open. And just to finish this, you know, Prigozhin and in, well, Prigozhin himself, certainly, Kadyrov a little less so, are in and around Putin's inner circle. And they just took a swing at a commander that Putin had handpicked in public, which is a particular problem. And I'll end this comment on this point, because 
the truth is very likely that Putin is responsible for the debacle at Limon. Because as Western intelligence agencies have been reporting, he is probably giving direct commands to the field commanders. So I don't know whether Prigozhin and Kadyrov had reflected on that, but in effect, they've launched an attack that can end up on Putin's doorstep. That sounds to me like it. we could, cannot exclude the fact that they consciously did that because Putin had handpicked him and because he was standing sort of guard for Putin's decisions, they couldn't, they couldn't punch Putin in the face. And so they picked this guy, which to me sounds like um, the whole support front is maybe not yet collapsing, but certainly showing, um, showing for the first time from what you're saying, some major fractions. Um, and if I, if I, if I may add to that, I'm wonder, you know, how, how we should be thinking about where, it might go from here if you have any intuition you know about like how how a standoff between these two groups might might evolve i mean especially if it's happening in the open i mean that's that seems quite unprecedented in the in the in the current uh, russian context is a sort of symptom of 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 an perhaps a sort of deeper challenge to 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 putin's power or is, you know things getting out of control or 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 you know what what you know what, what sort of news should we be preparing ourselves for in the coming days uh, let me start with Yulia's uh, question. I don't think that Kadyrov and Prigozhin mean to challenge Putin. I think that they really meant to go after Lapin. They are operating together with him on a front, and they, I think, wish to see him pushed aside and wish to see themselves basically installed in his place. And I don't actually think that they were reflecting on how much of a critique of Putin their attack on Lapin actually was. I could be wrong about that. And I'll give you a piece of evidence, partly in response to Dalibor's question, that could suggest that at least Putin didn't see it that way. But I would be surprised if they mean, meant to make a direct run at, or an indirect run at Putin. I think they really were going after Lapin. And secondarily, the Russian Ministry of Defense, because basically these guys are doing an unconventional mobilization and would like to kind of fight a less conventional kind of war. And so I think what you're seeing is these guys planting a standard saying, we've been doing well, the conventional MOD and conventional commanders are letting you down, boss, pick us and let us run this thing and we'll take it home for you. I think that is what they had in mind when they got after that. Um, but to Dalibor's point, um, and I, I just saw this come in, Putin did something remarkable today in a meeting with school teachers Putin asked one of them I, as, I don't have the full transcript but as far as I can tell apropos of nothing <laughs> what caused the Pugachev rebellion you can all be excused for not knowing what the Pugachev rebellion was <laughs> that was my next question it was a massive rebellion uh, that was the most significant challenge to Catherine the Great's reign uh, in, I think, 70, 1774 and 75, in which a lot of serfs, but also a lot of ethnic minorities, including Muslim minorities, rallied around a guy by the name of Pugachev who claimed to be Peter III, um, Catherine's husband, who was murdered so that she could ascend the throne. Um, and took advantage of various circumstances to declare himself Tsar and raise a sizable force 
uh, that required a lot of fighting to put down. So Putin asked this teacher what caused the rebellion and got actually a pretty truthful answer, which was the harshness of serfdom, which is true, and then the palace coups and the false Peters and all of that sort of stuff, which was not the answer Putin wanted. And so at a certain point... What did he want to say? He wanted the answer to say the Ukrainians or NATO or... No. He said, no. The answer is because the leader claimed to be the Tsar. That's how the rebellion arose, he said. And then Putin asked, why was that possible? And the teacher started to say, well, palace rebellions. And Putin seems to have cut the teacher off and said, it was the weakness of the central power. That was the answer. Of course it was. (laughs) So two lessons that Putin wanted to get over. One is weakness of the central government leads to rebellion, disorder, death, chaos, and mayhem. Two, nobody better think that they are the Tsar out there. That's a fascinating point for him to be making just at this particular moment. And it begs all kinds of questions about exactly at whom was that observation directed? Again, quite possibly apropos of nothing, Kadyrov claimed to have been promoted today. If we could return to stay on the topic, but return to planet Earth very briefly, uh, wondering whether uh, trying to solve this this uh, uh, three-way puzzle, why would uh, uh, the Wagnerites and the Kirdog and old Rosman, um, st- at least stumble into this trap. But both Kadyrov and the Wagner guys would be, uh, I would think, especially um, opposed to any hold-at-all-cost orders, such as in Limon and in these other towns, which seems to be sort of the feature of that wasn't their criticism. Putin's that wasn't their criticism. Their criticism was that that. Uh, Putin didn't reinforce Limon, uh, that he didn't send timely reserves and reinforcements to defend it. They very much are, are hold at all costs and, in fact, attack. And it, were there their own forces that were in the pocket, so to speak? Or No, it wasn't, um, on the whole, interestingly. Their, their forces, they've been concentrating. So they've been doing something quite fascinating, which is, and Putin's been letting them, they have been the only on the only sector of the front where the Russians have continued attacking. So even as the Russian position in Luhansk has been, or in Kharkiv and now toward Luhansk has been collapsing, and even as the Kherson positions begin to collapse, Kadyrov and um, Brigozhin are continuing offensive operations against the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut and around Ukrainian territory near Donetsk city. These are the most idiotic offensive operations I can possibly imagine. They can't be decisive. They're not going anywhere. They're aimed Even at if the they, wrong things. They're aimed at the wrong things. Even if they took those things, it wouldn't be decisive. And they are chewing up combat power that the Russians badly need elsewhere. But those attacks have continued unabated throughout all of the collapses. And it's been primarily Wagner guys and Kadyrov guys, uh, along with some of Lapin's troops, who have been continuing those attacks. So it wasn't their guys in the pocket. Since, since we are already on this on this topic, I wonder if you could maybe walk us through uh, what's happening on those two sort of major battlefields. You know, after what's happening after Liman in the northeast, and what is happening in the south around around Kherson with with with, with the Ukrainian 
troops advancing and we can sort of, you know, return the conversation to the sort of usual tone of, sort of exploring of what's happening on the on the battlefield. As, as interesting as this was. I, I, guys, I don't get a lot of chances to talk about the Pugachev Rebellion, so I was... I was, I was I will miss I will miss Kadyrov punching bag. I yeah. have to say, <laughs> I, I I won't. But I'll miss the, I'll miss the saga. I'll miss the drama and his Louis Vuitton combat boots. Yeah, it, it is quite powerful. Yeah. But if I can add to that, Fred, um, to sort of not um, not interrupt the conversation, which I think is or the saga, as you call it, fascinating. Maybe you can zoom us into. Um, uh, the northeast around Liman and Kherson, with a focus on where the largest shortcomings are of the Russians who owns them, but also where the biggest problems are in their incapacity to hold on to something, what the main causes are of their failure. The Ukrainian counteroffensives have been continuing um, in both the northeast and of course, in Kherson, and the, the one in Kherson has gotten the most news recently. But the Ukrainians are continuing to collapse the Russian positions in the tiny remnant of Kharkiv Oblast the Russians still hold, and are beginning to push uh, further into Luhansk uh, Oblast as well. And then they have just, the Ukrainians have just managed to break through what appear to have been thinly held Russian lines uh, in northeastern Kherson, uh, right next to the uh, Dnipro River and have been driving down the river bank, pulling the Russians away from that uh, position at the same time as they have attacked uh, from the sort of to the west of there and gotten across the Inhulets River, which was the other line that the Russians are trying to hold on the west of that salient. And the Russians are now withdrawing back and we will see how far the Ukrainians push and how where the Russians actually try to try to stand in the south. Um, from a theater level, Putin's decision-making here has been odd. He has fundamentally not reinforced the Northeast, even after the Kharkiv uh, counteroffensive collapsed big parts of the Russian military, including wrecking uh, divisions of the First Guards tank army. And the remnants of those primarily Western military district forces have fallen back successively. They tried to hold a line at the Oskiel River, which runs sort of north-south, just a bit west of the Luhansk Oblast border. The Ukrainians have pried them off of that line now um, and have made such a broad advance east of that line that the that river line is no longer um, really operationally significant for most of its uh, distance. Putin hasn't reinforced up there. The, the same forces are defending that have been defending all along. That's interesting. I'll come back to that in a minute. He's been continuing, as I said, to attack Bakhmut and around Donetsk City and hasn't redeployed forces from those sectors to the threatened axes. The area that he's been focused on reinforcing has been the south. And Russian reinforcements, as far as we can tell, have gone on the one hand to try to hold Western Kherson, and on the other hand to hold Zaporizhia, the province sort of between occupied Donbass and the Dnipro, where the Russians seem to be very concerned that the Ukrainians are preparing yet another uh, counteroffensive operation that hasn't launched yet. I have no idea if the Ukrainians are doing that or not, but the Russians are freaking out about it and are sending reserves there. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that Putin has, in a certain sense, rightly recognized that the South is much more decisive terrain than Luhansk is. 
uh, and particularly the northeastern Lukonsk is. It is critical for the Russians that they hold a bridgehead on the west bank of the Dnipro River uh, whenever this phase of the war ends, because if the Russians can begin the next invasion already across the Dnipro River, the Ukrainians are going to have a very hard time in future defending against it or, or would have a much harder time anyway. Whereas if the Ukrainians can push them back across the Dnipro, then it will be very hard for the Russians to initiate an invasion from the south uh, in whatever next phase of the war Putin has in mind. And by the way, I should be clear, it'll take the Russians several years to reconstitute the ability to do any of this. But I expect Putin has that kind of time frame in mind if necessary. So I understand the reinforcements going to that area. I don't understand the continued silly attacks that the Russian forces, that uh, Wagner guys and Prigozhin's guys are continuing to execute. We've had a lot of theories about that over the weeks, over the months, about how important it is to try to rally support in the DNR, in, in, in Donetsk and occupied Donetsk and Luhansk. It's past the point where I feel like I can offer any rational explanation for it. And more and more and more, it does seem like Putin is engaging in Hitler-style decision-making about, you know, we, you will hold Kharkov, you will hold Stalingrad, uh, even as I suspect his generals are saying, boss, I don't know if this is a good idea. But I really can't explain why he has not reinforced Luhansk. Uh, he's giving every indication that he's okay with losing it, but I really, it's hard for me to see why he would be. First comes annexation and then comes, uh, you know, uh, defeat. But that's the that's the pattern. So the Ukrainians have been continuing to drive. And Reinforcement. Losing the territory that you just annexed. Yeah, okay. So just to quickly follow up on this um, and to kind of link it to another question that um, that has been on everybody's minds over the last week or so in the panic of whatever mobilization we want to call it, we know um, from you as well um, and, and from analysts in general that the Russians, the reserve forces or even non-reserve are poorly equipped, if um, at all. Um, and so they're used as cannon fodder. And yes, a lot of people have fled, but um, Russia has a huge demographic still. So is it a matter of shortcomings in the uh, when it comes to human resources um, that we see non-reinforcements in Luhansk um, and, and in other places insufficient? Or is it a matter of how command and control works and the chaos that seems to be coming out of you know, we don't know if Putin is giving the orders. If he does, he has no idea what he's doing. Um, there's the private mercenaries. There's the central command, the southern command, all of that. So what are the main theories, I guess, in terms of why he's making these major mistakes? I haven't seen anything dis that would persuade me that Putin isn't himself responsible for the allocation of resources across the theater. So where we're seeing reserves go, I think it's still an appropriate assessment that Putin is making the decision to reinforce there and where the Russians are taking risk. I think it's reasonable to assess that he's decided to take risk there. So I would need much, I would need very solid evidence to, to accept the idea that we're seeing anything other than Putin's personal prioritization in the battle space. The lack of resources manifests in the fact that he's got to make choices. He doesn't have enough 
reserves coming in to reinforce everything. Um, now that's that's always true, but it's probably more true here than in other places. And he's clearly decided that he's going to fight to hold Kherson city, and he's willing to lose ground elsewhere. Insofar as he's willing to lose ground, that's that seems to be the calculation he's making. And again, I think that there are both political and military reasons that make that a, a not insane decision. Um, it it's only becomes questionable in the context of annexing territory that you're not going to defend and continuing to attack when it's not going to matter. I'm not quite sure I understand the Harrison decision all that well myself. So there's, as they sort of collapse, they're salient from the north back toward the city. There are really very few places that make a good defensive line before you get to the inlets where it comes in to join the Dnipro. But that, if you if you went back that far, first of all, it I mean you'd have a lot of forces concentrated in a really small area with almost zero reliable supply lines. Uh, you know, as the Ukrainians advance, the whole pocket would be within artillery range, as would the you know parts of Crimea that uh, are abutting that to the south. So, I mean, this would be, you know, again, very, uh, militarily, it's like creating it's like creating a Stalingrad intentionally, it seems to me, with the, pro, with the sort of political prospect that there would be a, you know, a surrender of substantial forces that would be very bad public relations, to put it mildly. What am I missing here? Look, I mean, no, it's it's going to be very. It would be very hard for the Russians to try to hold a position bounded by the by the inhalets. That's it's just way too close to the bridge and to the uh, and to the city. Uh, and I think if the Ukrainians got to the inhalets, I don't see the Russians continuing to hold their their position because, of course, they're they're with, they would Ukrainians would be within one five two and one five five range of the crossing and the entire area long before they got to the inhalets. I think the Russians are going to try to stop them, you know, well short of that. None of the terrain down here is particularly advantageous to the defender, but the Russians have managed to hold on uh, northwest of Kherson, for example, on steppe. I mean, it's flat, but they have managed to dig in and hold on. And of course, they had been holding on around the northeastern perimeter also, which is basically steppe too. It's not like there was a river line that the Ukrainians had to get across to do that. So I imagine that the Russians are going to try to collapse down to a smaller salient, but that nevertheless, if I had to bet, they will try to hold a salient such that they can continue to hope to use the Novokovka Dam road. I'm, I'm sure they don't want to give up that crossing and that is pushed far enough out that there are areas that are not within, you know, 152, 155 range. Whether they can or not is going to depend on how much benefit the Russians get from concentrating their limited forces in a smaller area versus what the Ukrainian, you know, counteroffensive capabilities continue to be with the added gradient on top of it that the Ukrainians have, I think, really choked off the Russian G-locks to the Western Bank. That has a bunch of effects, as you know, Giselle, because on the one hand, it means the Russians don't have supplies. On the other hand, that creates a psychological effect for soldiers also yeah, yeah. who need to be, especially in the context of retreat, asking themselves what their prospects are for getting across the river if things go bad. 
and having to worry about that. So it's, you know, it's hard to tell, particularly since we don't track the Ukrainian capabilities, I can't assess how far the Ukrainians can push this right now. And that's a huge variable. The, the stuff I was reading last night said they were within 50 kilometers of uh, the crossing point uh, at uh, Nova. Yeah, no, they're close. The, the question just is, I mean, forces, attacks culminate, Yeah, right? And yeah, yeah. attacks culminate because people get tired, even even if there aren't strong defenders in front of them. And I just I just don't know what the Ukrainian capabilities are to keep this keep this going. I was hoping to actually pick up on 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 this precise point and try to connect it to the bigger picture. So, so we obviously all hope that the Ukrainians succeed and drive the Russians out, restore full sovereignty to 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 to, to Ukraine. But I was wondering if we could sort of you know test the limits of your and and our own optimism about that, assuming that Ukrainians do succeed in retaking Kherson. How much of a natural barrier does Nipro represent for them being able to move further and given you know this concentration of Russian forces that you that you that you uh, alluded to earlier you know h- how much of a pull would it be like in, in 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 your assessment like if we are talking about you know the space of the coming you know weeks and months and I know that the Ukrainians have surprised us uh repeatedly by 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 sort of scoring significant successes um but what would be sort of your you know, most most sort of honest uh, assessment of, of 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 where things might go, assuming that they go well for for Ukraine in Kherson. The best outcome for the Ukrainians would be if they can lean into the the offensive, if they can keep going down the Dnipro and at the same time continue to push in from the Inhulets uh, bridgehead that they've gotten across now at Davidovbrid, that they could turn the Russian withdrawal into a disorderly withdrawal of the sort that we saw uh, in Kharkiv uh, and have the Russian forces sort of psychologically collapse in a way that ends up with that the Russian salient sort of folding up. Um, on the one hand, you've got a lot of Russian airborne troops there. This is what is left of the Russian elite force. Those guys, in principle, should be among the last to panic. On the other hand, that was also true of the 4th Tank Division of the 1st Guards Army, which left the regiment's worth of equipment behind when it fled. That was also a more, that Ukrainian attack was more of a surprise. So, I mean, we, this can go back and forth. But on the one hand, the Russian units that are around Kherson City are the ones that shouldn't break. On the other hand, we've seen them break before and like that. But we also have volunteer units that are in Kherson city and we've got these individual replacements coming in for the Russians. And that, you know, we need to be careful about how we assess that because just because you add a body to a unit doesn't mean that the unit is one body stronger. Setting aside questions of training and equipment, panic is contagious and flight is contagious. And if you add bodies that are more likely to panic and flee to a unit that wasn't otherwise doing that, you can subtract from their combat power by adding those bodies. Now, that can go lots of different ways, and who knows, and individuals are different. But I do think that there is there continues to be a scenario here where we see a collapse on this front, different from but not completely different from what we saw in Kharkiv, with the added incentive to collapse being the fear of being trapped on the wrong side of the river, which can really drive panic faster if it begins. And then as Giselle pointed out, when if we get to the point where the Ukrainians get within regular tube artillery range of the Antonovsky crossing, and they're very close right now, 
then this this could get really ugly for the Russians and good for the Ukrainians. What are the chances Ukrainians get across the river? Who knows? In principle, I wouldn't be surprised if they can push the Russians south of Novokovka and get direct access to the river below the dam. I wouldn't be surprised if they started to get uh, small groups across. But the Ukrainians are going to have the same problem the Russians do, which is if they want to operate on the east bank of the river, they're going to need a G-lock. And that's it's hard for me to see that happening anytime soon. But also the, the you know, indirect fire uh, advantages that the Ukrainians have acquired will will make the Russians on the other side of the river, uh, you know, they'll they'll be able to cover crossing operations in the way that the Russians can no longer do. They could. I mean, you know, the Russians do have systems that the Ukrainians, I think, will not be able entirely to hit. The Russians are using S-300s in ground attack mode. Um, you know, those have a not short range. They have, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get too fanciful. I'd love to, I'd love to have the image in my mind of a Ukrainian, you know, Marines crossing the, the Nipro and swinging around from the rear. But I, I have to say, I think that's, I think that's relatively unlikely in the short term. Okay. We'll save that for the holiday season or something. <laughs> Visions of uh, sugar plums, et cetera, et cetera. If I can just, uh, I know we have to wrap up, but just really quick for, us and for our audience to understand over the last few weeks in the context of her son there's been a lot of chatter on the ukrainian side too um of um the of negotiations and the possibility of mass surrender in her son city and on the west side of the of the river is that just chatter is that just um you know war propaganda or how does that fit into this i mean we won't know until we see it i that is a scenario that wouldn't shock me because you've got a bunch of not well-trained, probably pretty demoralized Russians in a pocket that's collapsing on them with a river to their back that they don't know that they can get across. Those are not, I mean, a, a, a really committed fighting force that's really serious puts its back to the river and says, well, you know, we'll stand here and we'll die here. The Russian army is not giving any indication that it's that kind of force. So if it's not that kind of force, then yeah, I would expect to start to see greater defections and, and surrenders um, as the Ukrainians close in. And again, I mean, I think especially, I don't want to make too much of this because it's, it's always hard to tell how these things will go. But I do have in my mind that if we started to see Ukrainian tube artillery rounds landing on the barges uh, going across the river under the Antonovsky Bridge, that would be a moment that would be more likely to induce panic and possibly surrender. Well, Fred, you've been very tolerant, uh, both with your time and of our um, silly questions. But the penalty for that is uh, that you're going to get invited back in the future. And, and I'm quite sure we'll have a lot to talk about. I really appreciate uh, your time and uh, uh, the, not only the analysis that you bring to the table, but the that your organizations at CTP and ISW do. So um, all of us have come to rely on you and your people uh, quite a bit. Thank you. Thanks so much. So uh, from me, Giselle Donnelly and... Julia Joja and... Dalibor Rohaj. Thank you so much for listening to The Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at AEI.org, 
or at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You should be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. That's all one word uh, on Twitter. A couple of other quick announcements. First of all, we started a newsletter, and it's now up online and alive. You can sign up for it. Uh, through the link in the show notes, it, you get a bi-weekly update of newly re- released episodes, exclusive Q&A with your hosts, and you can stay up to date with the things that we write, op-eds, articles, and such on this topic. Finally, shortly uh, will be coming for subscribers, perhaps, uh, merchandise, Eastern Front uh, tchotchkes that are going to be uh, ideal holiday giving uh, centered around uh, our, our show logo. They look really nifty and uh, we're road testing those right now. So I'm sure you'll be in the edge of your seats uh, waiting for the uh, coffee mugs and tote bags that everybody's obligated to produce uh, by way of marketing. So uh, until next time, I'm signing off for the Eastern Front. Thanks so much.